Hello and uh, welcome to a special episode of uh, the Trademark Podcast. This episode is brought to you from three different locations. I'm in the heart of West Belfast. We have Stevie in Leitrim. God's country, uh, boy. God's country. Out, out in the sticks. <laughs> and we've got Mel in, in Lurgan. Um, Stevie, you've been preparing for a moment like this for some time with your uh, vegetable pots, your garden. <laughs> Livestock. Excuse me, it's not a fucking vegetable patch. It's one acre under the <laughs> under the spade, as we call it. I've enough here to survive for at least six months. I said to you he before. Yes, cases of beans and cases <laughs> of fucking double velvet. He has all over the place. Listen, when you yeah, fuckers are, when you fuckers are chewing up each other's ankles, I'm going to be eating chips. All right. <laughs> yeah. So you're there's there's a air of smugness about you and I. <laughs> I got Mel. You're an urban. Have people started eating one another yet? Yeah, well, workers are starting to walk out of the factories and all that sort of stuff. So revolutions in there are here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't be surprised me. It wouldn't surprise me if this was the, the kickoff point for worker season in means of production. Um, ABP meets today. Workers walked off the line. A thousand workers walked out in my park over various sites. I'm all concerned with their employers. Blase approach to... Um, Safety that's the kind yes, of that's the kind of enthusiasm and optimism we like to hear, Mel. I think we're some way from seeing work season the means of production <laughs> just at this point, but anyway. Well, uh, my my landlord is still trying to sell his house, the house that I'm in. So I'm gonna have to get in touch with the sticks to see if I can pick up some of those rusty guns. And then the doomsday bunker. Well, the only uh, good thing is, is the price of your house that you're renting has dropped so much that you might be able to afford it soon. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a stretch. <laughs> uh, we've said that we're going to continue with the historical capitalism series that we've been recording um, and producing all our content over the next uh, number of weeks and months. Uh, but we can't go without first discussing the, the unprecedented moment that, that we're in, um, which is surreal and, and terrifying in equal measure. Um, so let, let's start with the public health aspect of it. We're up to nearly 400,000 cases globally, a third of them in Europe, uh, 16,000 deaths at least. Um, and the WHO said that the pandemic is picking up speed. Um, so we don't yet know uh, how it's going to impact on likes of India and the global south, um, or even here. Uh, so we've seen how China and North Korea, or South Korea and Vietnam and countries like that in the global south have begun to respond to the crisis. Um, how does the response of our governments match up uh, to those efforts? Start with you, Stevie. Well, I think the word that comes to mind is clusterfuck. And that kind of sums up, I think, that the response policy-wise in every other way. They they responded too lately. Their response was deeply ideological, as we know. It wasn't based on evidence or science or, or policy. It was based on that kind of nonsense that's behind David Cameron's government of the, what do they call it, behavioral fucking sciences unit or something, the nudge unit within the Tory yeah. party, within number 10, which kind of one mate described. I read an article recently describing it as neuroliberalism, which I thought was very clever. And it's the idea that you don't have to make any changes to society. You just got to support the status quo and nudge people, you know, in the right direction and do small things to have positive social outcomes. And their, their small thing was to do fucking nothing. 
and to let the virus rip through the community and create herd immunity and all the rest of that nonsense. And I think within about two days, they backtracked on that. It was one of the biggest U-turns in political history. Um, but it just shows you the kind of deeply ideological nature of the response, really. I mean, it was a nudge unit stuff. It kind of gives marketing or an advertising kind of cover to what is naked ideology, you know? Um, and it shows up neoliberalism for what it truly is. Since then, of course, they've tried to backtrack and, you know, we've seen what they've tried to do since, but they lost about three or four weeks, mm. which is going to cause, you know, potentially thousands of un, un, unneeded deaths. Yeah, British exceptionalism has, has caused, um, caused many lives, I would say. Absolutely. Uh, Having said that, now, the Irish state, the Irish government wasn't much better. You know, both governments have done, kind of followed a similar path, really, in terms of their, their um, kind of, they wish not to close down the economy or to have any or have profits, profits impacted. And once again, it kind of lies the neoliberal myth that it's all about a small state. It's not about a small state. It's about a big state for capital and a small state for the people. And, um, you know, bailout, bailout 2008 led to austerity. And then the current bailout we're seeing happening is going to lead to um, little people dying. Um, so big state for capital, small state for us. And it's, uh, it's no surprise um in the British and Irish cases, you know, the, you're seeing problems, huge pressures on public services. And it's no surprise because they've been deliberately run down, defunded and privatised over the past 40 years. Yeah, well, how could, how could uh, you know, how could they cope with that? I mean, it's, it's just beyond belief that we're all expected to play our part in... in um, Protect the NHS. Everything's reduced now to a soundbite. Protect the NHS on the wee uh, um, podium in front of Boris at his daily um, press conferences. Mm. And they've spent the last thirty years stripping his bar. Um, yeah. And those those people are um, heroic in their efforts to keep us all to keep us all well. Um, and you know the surge really hasn't even started. You know Fiona said to me yesterday. There's four people heading that in Northern Ireland. And he says, if you're going to count every one of them, you know, it's going to take a long, long time. Hey, Mel, who's, who, who, Mel who's Fiona? Just for our 500 listeners. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's Mel's wife, by the way, just in case anyone didn't know that, you know. <laughs> I know we're sitting having a chat in our front rooms here, but, you know. And uh, I noticed that they're, they're calling for... 250,000 volunteers uh, to support the NHS um, without pay. Um, they're asking people to risk their lives to, to now prop up uh, a system that's under immense pressure and is going to be for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's... Go on, sorry, Sean. Sorry, go ahead, Stevie. No, I'm just saying it's, we, we've, all, we've all said it, anyone on the left or anyone who's, who understands what's been happening for the last 30 years understands that this is it's kind of casting a, a, a light onto the, you know, what, this is what happens when you run down public infrastructure for 30 years, you know, and it's showing up the, the contradictions in the system, uh, in all systems, you know, you can't have market solutions to these kinds of existential threats. And so it's teaching us an awful lot and teaching people an awful lot about how the economy works, how the state's structured, and the important role and the, the vital role that the state has to play uh, in dealing with these kinds of threats. You know, I mean, there's the, the idea that they've, they're renting private, in Britain at least, they're renting private beds, you know, off of private hospitals in order to deal with this crisis. I mean, you think about it, there's 8,000 empty beds in Britain just waiting for rich people to get ill. 
but normally that, that's the system yeah. i mean it's a fucking ridiculous system and the irish government's doing much the same and they could have followed the course of spanish government's position where they just nationalized well i don't know if they've nationalized it but they some requisitioned requisitioned the entire private sector of health so um yeah the irish yeah. government's doing exactly the same they're they're paying the private sector to rent their their hospital beds um so they're talking about operating a universal healthcare system for you know for the duration of the crisis um but it's only a temporary measure and the private health companies will be well compensated um for their uh, sacrifice um, i suppose i suppose we can only hope that some of these short-term fixes become permanent you know that's kind of what we're hoping on the left but that would of course mean that we'd need to be in power to make sure they're permanent and it's the issue of power here is people are getting you know run away with themselves aren't they about how this is emerging as some sort of socialist state or new new form yeah. of socialism it really isn't now it's flagging up what could be possible in a different kind of world but in order for that possibility to be um realized the left would have to gain power win power everywhere and we're still not in position to do that same as we weren't in 2008 you know a great yeah. opportunity there another opportunity here potentially and we're still not in a position to, to to make gains if you like from these crises the right however is in the position to make gains from these crises and that's a problem that's yeah, a genuine it's, problem it's state, we're seeing state intervention but uh, the question is for what purpose and and who benefits and mm -hmm. who ultimately benefits um mel what what do you make of the northern executives response uh, how have they handled it well, I mean, I'm not at all surprised, you know, for really, it's nothing more than a glorified county council. I mean, I've been saying for for an awful long time now that our politicians are, aren't equipped for the most basic of political activities. In, ter in terms of the economy, how long have we been saying that um, politicians really don't know anything beyond, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the politics of neoliberalism? Can't think outside the box. Um, there's no ideology there. A lot of those politicians, if they were born on the other side of the community, would be quite comfortable in the other political party. Um, so they don't have the tools and they're not equipped to deal with the major crisis. Um, and you've seen that um, uh, with Robin Swan's um, pronouncements. Um, and you know, I feel sorry for him because what's he got to work with? Um, but the pressure on... on uh, Michelle O'Neill the other day in the house and the mischievousness of um, Jim Allister asking a question that he, he knew there was no answer to, that these are choices that are going to be everyday choices for the foreseeable future, not for politicians to make, but for health professionals at the core to make. Um, and ask a, a question like that and reduce that woman to the way she was, was just pathetic. Well, it kind of it highlights the nature. criticism has to be uh, reserved for the Unionist parties who for so long wet their approach to um, the British government um, recklessly and, and, you know, dangerously. Yeah, well, see, in any other place, people would look at that and say that, you mean, that's so obvious. But in this place, um, it really will go right down the middle. People say, no, 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 we were right. No, Arlene was right. That, uh, you know, we're British and, you know, that's the, the most important thing that matters. Um, it's what makes this place even more ridiculous than we ever thought it was. Um, the notion that we haven't got um, an all-island strategy to deal with this particular problem, even though the response in the free state hasn't been really, Stevie has highlighted, hasn't been a great deal better. 
and the you know the the ideology that underpins both responses is still about protecting the economy and protecting the market. There's no doubt that's true, Mali. You've hit the nail on the head there. There's this assumption that because they've provided wage support, so that's somehow beneficial for the people. Now, it is in the medium term and the short term because it provides people who are in full-time employment wages. There's still the issue of self-employed. There's still the issue of people on precarious working and zero-hours contracts. But that idea that the state's going to give zero-interest loans to companies to survive this period, and after that, they're just going to come out of this all hunky-dory, they're going to be massively fucking indebted, as many of those companies already are. To the point where they can't function. And what was it you said last week, Sean? Within the OECD, nearly 10% of companies are zombie companies that can only function by using their profits or indeed borrowing more money to pay off the interest on the debt they already have. And this period, what we're planning to do is it's foist even more debt onto these companies. So we're not talking about cancelling their utility bills, cancelling their, their debts, cancelling their bank loans. We're talking about lumping more debt onto these companies. So millions of companies globally but tens of thousands in britain and Ireland will be bankrupt in six months even if we do come out of this even there is even if there is some sort of exit strategy which there isn't at the moment which so we're not actually helping capital even you know i mean this is it's kind of one mistake after another watching it from afar it's just like watching a slow motion fucking car crash yeah but let's not forget there's no there's a medical emergency here as well yeah you know and, and the very fact that the the um the who have been saying People need to test, test, test. Mm. We have a manufacturer not 20 miles from, from where we all live that's manufacturing these tests yeah. and on the social media saying that they're available. Not, I wouldn't know what to do with one if I got one. I would appreciate a test because I've been unwell for a couple of weeks. Um, but it was, it was so central to how we battle this um, pandemic going forward because there are a lot of people that have been ill if they were uh, tested and seen that they've We've now developed immunity that could get back in to help the, the effort. You know, all of those things, um, that's really what sets us apart from what has happened in, um, in the Far East in relation to, you know, people have been tested everywhere. You can't walk out of the house with somebody putting a temperature gauge on your forehead. Um, and, you know, so it's the, um, I suppose, the, the, the approach of the the countries that are coming out of this on the on the far side of the the pandemic um, is in stark contrast really to what we're doing here, and it's going to be bad here. But think of what it's going to be like for millions of Americans who mm. Donald Trump suggests could be back at work with you know for the Easter holidays. Yeah, well, the Americans have clearly taken on the the nudge units advice that the most important thing is to preserve capital. And that's what they mean. When they say preserve the economy, they mean preserve profits, of course, and just let the little people die. I mean, they've, they've, you, can, you know there are people in rooms in America making those calculations at the moment, thinking, actually, what, so we lose 2 million people? That's a lot. I'm not sure, look, you know, what did that bloke say the other day? They're quite expensive, old people and vulnerable people. They cost us money. They're not very efficient. They don't produce. They're not profitable. So wouldn't it be better just to fucking cull them? And sure, that would lead to that, give the economy a bit of a bounce. That's the sociopathic nature of this system. And this... This pandemic is kind of, um, again, it's highlighting or kind of, you know, shining a light on the sociopathic nature of capitalism. It's just speeding up in a month what capitalism does all the time anyway. We're going to discuss some of the economic dimensions of the, of the crisis in more detail in a moment. Um, Are you telling me off? Are you telling me for shutting up and leading us off in the wrong direction <laughs> on tangent? Oi, 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 turn that fucking microwave off, will you? To interfere with my <laughs> Wi-Fi. Fuck's sake! Someone's got a fucking pot uh, noodle out there or something. <laughs> the uh, in, in fairness to uh, back to the back to the north, in, in fairness to Sinn Fein and 
SDLP and Alliance and some of the smaller parties they recognised the need for a different approach much much earlier than than the uh, than the bigger unionist parties. Um, so you know they have identified the need for a different approach and tried to tried to push it. Um, yeah, the, but, the, but the very fact there was a quasi sectarian response to this is just as melted. It's just fucking embarrassing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one of the things it. one of the things that heartens me is the community's response. You know, I think there's a healthy mistrust here of the Tories, of the British government, um, and of and of the unionist parties. You know, it goes across the divide. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's prompted people to, to sort of go into lockdown themselves. They act act themselves to to set up. Um, community self-help and uh, organisations and display acts of solidarity and, and so on. Um, but so there's, there's, that, a, there's a tradition here well. of that, isn't there? But it's also one of the yeah. potential potential positive legacies of the peace process is the money that we invested in community development and community networking and all that kind of stuff. So it's coming to the fore, I think, you know, because those networks exist, aren't they? Both within communities and across communities. So, as you said, you're seeing a bit of a flourishing of that community empowerment, mm. localized forms of democracy. So that's all healthy and that's all good, you know. I good see about it. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of the, the groups that I've been working with um, on other post post conflict issues are now repurposing themselves. Um, how can we protect the vulnerable? How can we um, ensure that people have had access to to food and services and all of that stuff? And it's it's quite remarkable watching that happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm seeing it right across West Belfast. Um, people in the Falls of Changle working working together to provide supplies and you know needed much needed equipment and food and and so on. So as you say, it could be one of the could also be one of the positive legacies of this of this unfortunate crisis. Um, Stevie, you'll be happy to know we're going to move on to the economic dimensions of get of in the, there, get in of the crisis. <laughs> um, I'm just hoping we all survive it. My, my my input on economics or, or, the, or the pandemic? No, the, the <laughs> pandemic, you know. Uh, uh, we're facing in the more severe economic downturn than the, what is called the Great Recession of 2008 uh, and nine. Um, at that time, the response to the economic crisis was a combination of bailouts, stimulus, debt, uh, followed by a decade of austerity, as as we know. Um, so, what what has been the economic response this time around? Steve, you mentioned the the US there, and what's been the response there from the from the government? Well, broadly, more broadly speaking, in terms of the Great Recession of two thousand eight, they're talking about now you know, that that this is going to be bigger than the Great Depression of nineteen twenty nine potentially. That you yeah. know that's all. You know, a collapse in GDP. I think 2008, we saw a 10% collapse in GDP over three years. We're seeing a 10% collapse in GDP within three weeks. And that just gives you a signal of the intensity of the collapse. Now, whether, of course, it's going to be kind of what they call a V-shaped economic downturn. So, that, you know, you fall down into a massive crash and you're straight back out of it. Whether it's a U-shaped one where, you know, it's going to be a collapse and a slow recovery, or whether it's just a fucking downward spiral. You know, it's just being straight I saw a graph yeah. the other day of American unemployment. And from the nine, it had 1980 through to 2020, and it's gone up to something like three million in two weeks. It's increased by three million in two weeks. I mean, millions of people are losing their jobs. So, how you get out of that crisis, I don't know. But um, yeah, I but the markets, the markets respect, uh, responded um, spectacularly to the news of the uh, stimulus that was agreed in Congress. Mm. I mean, it's almost a vertical upward curve. 
from the losses that they've had over the last couple of weeks. Now, we know that that's temporary. Um, whenever that stimulus doesn't get to the people that it needs to get to, um, the, the, the downward trajectory is really towards depression. But even that stimulus package is largely based on bailing out businesses in the short term and putting more debt on those yeah. businesses. So as, as Sean said, it's much the same response to 2008 crisis. We're basically loading more debt on an already indebted system. I mean, the only difference is that it's the corporate sector that looks like the financial sector did in 2008. It's just the corporate sector that's carrying the debt this time rather than just the financial sector. It's heavily leveraged. It's been engaged in share buybacks for the last 10 years. To making yeah. itself look profitable, making itself look innovative. So many, I mean, Fortune kind of five, 100 companies in America aren't doing that well. Uh, that's the reality. And that was the reality before coronavirus. No one's talking about it. We mentioned it on our last yeah. podcast that capitalism's in a parlor state anyway. This has just kicked it in the balls and has finished it off. So, but it doesn't look to me, Sean, your point, as if they're trying anything different from last time. So, you know, this crisis will only lead to another crisis. We're in, a, we're, in a, we're in a real systems crisis here, I reckon, you know. Yeah, I noticed that Michael Hudson had a good piece on Counterpunch, um, talking about the need for a debt jubilee. He's yeah. making that point, you know, that we're piling debt on, on the existing debt, more debt on the existing debt. Households are already struggling with their debt. The corporate sector is, you know, states are too. There's a sovereign debt crisis coming, uh, particularly in the global south. Um, and as you say, the response seems to be to, to add more debt to that. Um, we, we, uh, I remember Michael Hudson wrote that first after 2008. He said that the only thing that will return mm. even capitalism to its previous state, which he's been a bit hopeful there, or it might have been Steve King, the Australian professor, but he said you have to cancel some of this debt. You have to have a debt jubilee. And people kind of laughed at him then. But I think it's going to be mm. a very serious debate within capitalism over the next five years because um, I think the world's already worth like $322 trillion in debt. And that's about to increase significantly. And um, so the systems crisis that was happening in capitalism hasn't gone away, you know, uh, and it's only going to get worse. Um, and that's the reality. So um, people are going to slowly come to terms with that. But capitalism, as we understood it, it, it's kind of finished. It's gone. That neoliberal form of capitalism has come to its end now. Whether there's a new kind of capitalist development that can emerge out of that, I don't know. Um, it's kind of that Royal Luxembourg uh, quote, isn't it? Socialism or barbarism is more apt every couple of years in this system. There are big changes to come and big decisions to be made, whether we're in the position on the left or as, you know, the organised left or whatever you want to call it, to influence that decision. That's another matter entirely. Well, dare we talk about the, the European Union? <laughs> Do we have to? <laughs> yeah. Has <laughs> uh, anyone been following the, the conversations uh, at a European Union level? The I was looking at the Corona bonds thing about one of the suggestions for you know, issuing corona bonds, restoring, you know, EU-level debt, Eurozone debt to help out Italy. Uh, and for those who don't know, that would kind of spread the carrying of that debt across all of the members of the European Union, as opposed to using the um, ESM, the European Stability Mechanism. I think that's right. You can correct me, Sean. So yeah. I think the Germans and the Dutch and others are going, no, nah, I don't think so, mate. Um, we'll just let Italy in further indebt itself, um, which, of course, raises the... which, of course, hit, hits Italian bonds as well and makes it hard for them and more expensive for them to borrow money and all the rest of it so they basically kicked Italy in the balls and says no we're not helping you so um, it kind yeah, of brings well, to light what European social solidarity means doesn't it it's, well it's been exposed as a myth hasn't it really <laughs> yeah um, the, we, always, uh, we always knew that of course <laughs> yeah, there, yeah the, the, there are differences within the Euro group of finance ministers as to whether you should use the, 
the bailout sort of approach, which would come with stringent austerity conditions, of course, mm-hmm. to Italy and Greece and peripheral countries that are already struggling, or they agree on a common debt instrument that would, as you say, share the burden and ensure that they could pay those debts off over the over the, the long term. Um, nine countries, I think, have written to the European president uh, this morning uh, to, to ask that they, they agree a common debt instrument, basically to pleading for them to, to save the euro. Um, so I, I think we, in the absence of that sort of agreement, we, we could be uh, witnessing the beginning of the collapse of the, of the euro. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think that's an exaggeration, to be honest with you. I mean, it, but, it, but that, that idea, that idea, that auto-liberal response to the crisis, you can see it at the international level as well, at global level. The head of the IMF recently said that if they were to get involved in, it, in any kind of fiscal stimulus package, that it would come with stringent conditions and they would be for structure, what you call structural reform. We all know what that means. That means yeah. global austerity for the next fucking 10 years. Yeah. So they haven't, changed, they haven't changed their approach. This is, they're kind of... You know their 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 approach to to dealing with the economy is the same as it was in two thousand and eight, and that didn't work for us. I mean, so their approach is the same this time. So that's a concern. They don't really know what they're doing. I think you know that they've got no more tools or no more fiscal levers left. Yeah, it's the same as what I talked about earlier around um, you know this free place. That, that that's modern politics. Modern politics is it's a bit like you know there's one way of doing politics and that's it. And once you once something like this. Kicks you in the balls. You've you have you've nothing to look sideways at to see what can we do things differently. Um, and you know the only things that the Italians had were Chinese and Cuban solidarity. You know the, the sight of the the person lowering the European flag and replacing it with the Chinese flag. And yeah. This is all hope for um, what we can do with the fucking European Union. Now this is all over. Yeah, I think it's it's demonstrated that the European Union is not a pan-European political entity it's a it's a conglomerate of individual states they're looking out for the interests of their own national capital um, absolutely yeah just doesn't stand up against as you said you know, just doesn't stand up against the the practice of socialist internationalism does it, it just yeah. you have to kind of get people who are still you know, I don't know in love with with this with this international organization to to compare interrailing and Erasmus programs with the, the Corona bond suggestion. Now, if you want to see real, genuine international solidarity, you would see a, you'd see a massive fiscal response, wouldn't you, across Europe mm. and spreading debt and helping everyone. And what have they done? They deniedly, fuck you. Uh, and that's, that's the nature of the European Union showing itself. It's, it's Emperor's new clothes time here. And people have to start looking at the EU for what it is. And in fact, what it's always been. And whether they'll yeah, do that so, or not, I don't know. Yeah. Of course, and if you, the, the other um, irony of all of this is now that um, all of us here in the North are now dependent on Her Majesty's revenue and customs for making sure that we've got some sort of um, uh, money to keep ourselves alive. And people just across the border wonder, what, what, can, what can we do? Why is the government not giving us money? Why are they not guaranteeing our jobs? Well, are we members of the European Union? It's not so rosy now, is it? They have suspended. They have suspended the the rules, haven't they, of debt to GDP ratios, or some of them at least, mm-hmm. or suspended state aid rules. Because you're looking at all states in Europe. I mean, having debt levels increasing significantly. Yeah. Away above the three percent rule. Yeah, they had to do that. They had to break the rules of the European Union. Well, um, France, and the thing is that, but that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, 
everyone's breaking the rules now, but France and Germany have been breaking the rules for the last 10 years and no one gives a shit about them because they basically, the, the, the power blocks within the European Union are allowed to do that at will for their own whims, but now they have to do it for everybody because the rules of the EU will not and do not work in this crisis. They can't cope with interesting. So they're breaking them all. It's interesting that, that France signed the letter to the European president or the, the EU president calling for a common debt instrument. So there are, mm. I think that represents uh, a long, the culmination of a longer process where France and Germany have sort of been pulling apart yeah. um, on some of these issues. Um, and so it's significant that France are, are calling for. I think we could start to sort of witness the, the further breakdown of the disciplinary logic of the, of the EU in terms of the, the fiscal rules, in terms of state aid and all that sort of stuff. It's out the window really, isn't it? Yeah, well, that yeah. see that that the French kind of push towards EU federalisation. That's that, that's um, their response. To this comes out of that kind of political point of view. They're quite you know big into the concept of federalising Europe, where the Germans never have been really. The Germans are kind of happy with the status quo of the European Union because it suits their economy, it suits their manufacturing base, it suits their exports. So they're pulling in different directions because Germany doesn't really want a federalised Europe. That would mean a rebalancing of you know, the economies across Europe, there'd have to be a massive transfer, wouldn't there, of, of wealth, literally, from the centre to the periphery. And Germany's going no to that. France, or Macron, at least, who's quite a federalist, would consider that, I think, would be part of his idea. So um, if you're not a fan of, the, fan of the EU, that split is a good thing. You know, they're heading in different directions now. Yeah. Steve, you alluded to uh, the, some of the things that the British and Irish governments have been, have been doing. Uh, <laughs> freezing uh, or deferring mortgage payments and, and so on. Uh, what are the limitations of the two governments' approaches? Um, what haven't they done that, that they really should be doing? Well, there's huge issues around self-employment, there's huge issues around precarious workers and people on zero-hours contracts. Um, people, and uh, you know, at the moment in Britain, at least, if you're sacked, as your man Weatherspoons Martin did, the 40,000 of his workers there yesterday, those people have to apply for job seekers, which is what, 90 pound a week or something. I don't know what it's fucking is, lucky enough. Um, but it's not enough to live on. Um, and also there's now blockages in that system. There's no guarantee of immediate payments. So there's millions of people who are going to be struggling within the next three to four weeks. Now, if you're in a zero hours contract, you need, that's, that's weekly, monthly money. So within a, within a week or two, you're going to be in trouble. So the governments haven't responded to that at all, I don't think. In terms of what they've done for businesses, I've made the point already. They're not, you know, that 80% wage supplement in Britain is that's all right for short term, but really all it does is in debt businesses. A lot of them all might survive this period, but then they'll go under anyway afterwards. Um, and the, the biggest issue here isn't just this, isn't just what they're doing now, is that there's no, there's actually no exit strategy for this. But like no one knows how to get out of this, I suppose. So um, that concerns me slightly more is that the economy that tanks isn't just going to bounce back up in three or four months. You know, so we're going to be heading into a depression. That's the real concern here. You know? Um, and with with right wing governments in charge, I know who carry the who carry the can for that. And it won't be yeah. It won't be capital or labour. It's yeah. It's instructive, Mel, isn't it, to see that the governments are doing everything they can to prop up the capitalist system to keep profit making going to allow certain areas of the economy to remain operating. Um, without actually intervening in a way that takes takes control of key <coughs> um, try to reshape the economy, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I think um, if that's the case, they're underestimating what the next couple of weeks are going to bring. 
uh, because I don't think that um, the people that are suffering here and are going to suffer um, uh, on a huge scale across the world are going to just say, okay, that, Jesus, that was rough, wasn't it? You know, back to business as usual. It can't. We can't allow that to happen. We, that's why we have to redouble our efforts to work with um, working class people, empower them with the knowledge that they need to understand the system, to make sure that we are well equipped for positioning ourselves to say, this is never going to happen again. Um, because people, people didn't do it after the Second World War. Now, I know that, you know, we could get into, we probably will in the next, um, next uh, historical capitalism video, but um, you know, after the devastation that was created, particularly by working class people, they said to sovereign governments across the world, no, we're not having this. And then, of course, there was the um, example of, of a good example in uh, Soviet Russia, um, where workers uh, uh, created something completely different. I think we're looking at seismic change on those proportions, and I can't see capitalism in its neoliberal form recovering from this. No, but you can see emerging from this, um, you know, totalitarian control and surveillance emerging. It's not necessarily the case that we're going to emerge into a, a socialist utopia. The, the, no, the that's, that's already there. That's already happening, Stevie, yeah. There's but no I mean, the, 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 the point about state intervention is that state intervention, if it's democratic, is what we want. State intervention that we're seeing at the moment isn't necessarily for the benefit of workers, as you said. It's for the benefit of preserving their system. Um, and, that, and that's the issue. But what it does do, and we have to look on a bright side, as well. it does highlight the contradictions again in the system. I mean, even that embedded narrative of there is no money, we can't afford it, that's fucking gone. I mean, the, the, the British government can just pull 350 billion out of their ass, you know, like that, out of thin air. And people ask, well, how can I do that now? They couldn't do that 10 or 12 years ago. And we've been arguing this and talking about this for 10 years. And people look at you strangely when you say that, you know, governments in charge of their own currency can never run out of money. That's a fact. And people don't believe that because the narratives of, you know, balanced budgets, live within your means, all that stuff is so embedded, uh, you know, people believe it. So this is now throwing all of that out the window, throwing all the cards up in the air. And so some of the narratives that we wanted to break are breaking around us. And that's a positive thing. So we have to take that opportunity. A, a huge hole has been blown in the narrative of charity, hasn't it? And, Absolutely. Uh, it's, I think you said earlier on, Stevie, it's never been easier to point to the fact that the, the emperor is bald naked. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there's something inherently wrong with the economic model under which we, we live. Well, it shows as well that in, in, when there are existential threats to us all, that the market can't solve them. And that, you know, citizen, citizen democracy and state intervention and all the things that we see happening around us, are, you know, we're seeing some of the answers to the existential threat of this climate breakdown. So out of this, it's, it's a, as a liberal would say, it's a great teaching moment <laughs> to talk about the global economy and how it's structured, you know, yeah. and we have to take opportunity of that, of course, and, and, make, and make good out of it, make hay while the sun shines, you know. Um, yeah. Right, lads, we're coming to an end of this, Sean. I think we're about to be, we're about to be cut off by Zoom. <laughs> and uh, when the uh, the immediate crisis passes, of course, there will be climate breakdown to address. Um, there'll be health systems to repair, and there'll be no better opportunity to dismantle the fossil fuel system and decarbonise the economy. Um, that you know, it's going to create an opening for us. I think there. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Commissioner demands to start for workers and trade unions to start. Um, 
taking control of their working conditions, ensure that the, the provisions are being made now in terms of sick pay uh, and so on, and health and safety aren't reversed, but they're built on, um, and, and that we continue to, to, to push <coughs> these demands. Um, any last words, Mel? Well, uh, I just think that all of that stuff, we'll have, we'll have to take that, we'll have to build that, and we'll have to demand it. Um, it won't be given to us. We'll have to fight for it tooth and nail, just as like we've always done. Um, but, but the opportunity presents itself. Um, I, I, and it's taken a huge uh, international uh, disaster, catastrophe, for us maybe to open up that opportunity. Yeah, we could, we could even be looking at a, a new internationalism emerge, or a realignment of the global order even. Um, well, yeah, it might. I mean, you'd hard to think it would strengthen international cooperation and kind of global efforts to treat disease and produce medical equipment to, to follow Cuba's model. You know, about pooling medical resources, people working together internationally. Those are a positive stories as well, I think, that mm. uh, we need to be talking about and spreading and talking about people. The other thing that, that's interesting about this, of course, is it's, it's a little bit like the revenge of nature as well, isn't it? I mean, that, you know, the coronavirus thing is a bit like, we know, from, I listened to a great podcast the other day by Rob Wallace, an evolutionary biologist, and it was about that, the fact that these pathogens yeah. are coming from areas of you know, wildlife habitats that are being eaten into by industrialized, <coughs> industrialized farming. Um, so you get these species jumps, you get the release of these pathogens, which then infect a kind of globalized world, a globalized world that has the, that's public infrastructure so degraded it can't respond. You know, and people die because of that. So that there's a big fucking story here to be told by us about how this mm. system will not work. Um, in the, you know, particularly with climate breakdown as a major threat. So it's another opportunity. It has to lead, to lead a fundamental question and of the system, uh, how it operates and and what we need to do and what needs to replace. Absolutely. I mean, fuck social democracy at this point. I mean, the only way you get yeah. back to the only way you go back to the 1950s is in a fucking time machine, as you said once, Sean. Or if you have a pair of ruby slippers, her red slippers. Yeah, the gold, the golden period of capitalism is well gone. As is neoliberalism. Here, here. Round of applause. Okay. Well, I think thanks very much, lads. I think we'll leave it on on that note. Um, for our next episode, we'll turn our attention to historical capitalism part three. So listen out for that. And we'll uh, have another look at the the situation um, in terms of the coronavirus at a later date. Uh, until then, um, keep safe and and take care. Slango for.